Okay, let's get this started. Hi, this is Talking American Studies with Jasmin Künzer and me, Verena Adamek, sitting here at the University of Potsdam, reporting on currents of North American studies in Germany. Our topic today is white supremacy in the USA and in North American studies in Germany. And for this, we talked to Samira Spatzek from the University of Bremen and Cedric Essie from the University of Osnabrück, who are the editors of the online journal Current Objectives of Postgraduate American Studies, also known as COPAS. Right. And white supremacy in the USA is the topic of COPAS' newest thematic issue, Out Now, as in Just Right Now. I think they might be actually uploading it as we're recording this. If you don't know COPAS, first of all, shame on you. But anyway, COPAS is a peer-reviewed online journal that once a year publishes the work of postgraduate scholars that have presented at the Postgraduate Forum of the German Association for American Studies. To insiders known as the PGF of GAAS or the PGF of the DGFA. I'm so sorry, but I think there might be more acronyms coming up. Oh yes, there are. COPAS is a peer project. It is a publication of postgraduates for postgraduates and for many emerging scholars who actually publish with us it is the first time that they are able to publish something. I think it's a very rewarding experience in that sense for everybody who is involved. That's true. Because um, I mean I remember when I was at the beginning of my PhD studies I didn't know how the publishing industry worked. I didn't know where I could sort of turn to or where I should To, to whom I should send my abstract or articles. And I think it is because of the close connection between the PGF and COPAS that we can sort of enable a lot of people to actually publish something for the first time. In addition to this annual issue, COPAS also publishes thematic issues. And for the 20th anniversary of COPAS, its current editorial team took stock and action. So in our upcoming anniversary issue, we're actually taking stock of the trends and trajectories that we can, could reconstruct by going through COPA's issues as a sort of archive of postgraduate research in Germany. We could clearly see a focus on analyses that work on racial minorities, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But the word whiteness and white supremacy is conspicuously absent throughout most of mm -hmm. the journal's history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we took a very deliberate um, and self-critical look at what had been published before mm -hmm. uh, in, with COPAS. And that was one of the, the main gaps that we were able to find and that we thought was needed to be addressed very, very urgently. I think um, just to briefly add to that, um, in 2019, there was the 400th um, anniversary of 1619. In 1619, the first African enslaved people landed in Virginia. Or I mean, they didn't land there, of course, because they wanted to go someplace, but because they were... They were landed. They were landed. They were captured and enslaved and brought to the North American mainland. And that was the first um, recorded arrival in quotation marks, of um, enslaved people on the North American mainland. And um, 2019 was the benchmark anniversary of that historical event. So that was also part of our thinking uh, about the 
continuities, um, his permutations um, and things like that of white supremacy um, as something that is we consider to be fundamentally sort of ingrained within um, the making of the U.S. Okay, let's back up a bit. For those not immersed in the field, the term white supremacy probably brings to mind historical examples in which white people openly declared themselves to be white supremacists, such as the people who called themselves the massive resistance that opposed the end of school segregation in the USA, or pseudoscientific theories which justified racial segregation and discrimination and violence. White supremacists are also to be found in white terrorist organizations such as the Ku Klux Klan and the Knights of White Camellia or the Nationalsozialistische Untergrund. More recent examples may be public persons, organizations and parties that only thinly veil their racist agenda, whether you call them the alt-right or the alternative for whatever. Our listeners who think post-colonially probably also think of white supremacy as the justification that white people made for committing colonial exploitation, land theft, displacement, slavery, environmental destruction, and genocide. However, our listeners who already are studying whiteness, so who are critical whiteness scholars, will by now make exasperated noises and roll their eyes. Because looking at such extreme examples of white supremacism, in this case they came from the USA and Germany, obscures that ideas of white supremacy continue to structure the world. White supremacy endows white people with privileges, which even the liberal and well-intended white person is likely to deny. For example, um, racial profiling is then often downplayed as based on experience of police officers or as some sort of a statistic anomaly. One prominent observation that emerged from critical whiteness studies is that white people who are not identifying as white supremacists and who emphatically deny that they, they are racist at the same time are profoundly uncomfortable to speak about their own race and about what whiteness is and about what privileges it entails. So in preparation for this interview, I read an article by Bell Hooks. And of course, her main field of studies is not whiteness, but never mind that for a second. Because in this article, she discusses why black perspectives crucially contribute to whiteness studies. And in this article, she observes that white people, such as her students, react with extreme emotions, disbelief, shock, rage, when black students make statements about whiteness. She speculates that white people would like to believe that asserting that we are all the same will easily make racism disappear. Yet the fact remains that in front of the law, in banks, in the schooling system, in real estate, in security checks at the airport, and in many seemingly benign, maybe, day-to-day -day interactions, white people enjoy privileges that they like to be unaware of. And again, here you can look at Germany or at the USA. And of course, that also changes how you behave in public when you are white or when you are non-white, or how you behave in general. In various media as well, 
whiteness continues to assert its normativity. And one simple example would be that a person's skin color is often only mentioned when it denotes that person as non-white. I guess as a white person that has been taught by her parents and her siblings that racism is bad. It creates severe cognitive dissonance that I am nonetheless often profiting from being white and even perpetuating whiteness, even if I may be unaware of it. And where cognitive dissonance remains unexamined, there it results, as any psychologist will tell you, in irrational and emotional behavior. By the way, if you want more suggestions on what to read regarding white supremacy and the role that affect, especially shame and anger play, stay tuned. Regarding this avoidance of addressing whiteness, Cedric and Samira both asserted that they see this in German academia, where topics are colonialism, developmentalism, othering, orientalism, passing, blackness, indigeneity, but hardly ever whiteness. Yeah, but that's the crucial difference yeah, um, yeah. for us too, yeah. right? So people yeah. work on a race, but they're not addressing whiteness or they're not naming whiteness mm -hmm. because of the implications that come with naming whiteness, mm -hmm. right? It's, mm -hmm. much, it's much safer for a white scholar to talk about race in an yeah. abstract, in the abstract, in, mm -hmm. a, in, in an abstract general uh, term or in general terms. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, that was yeah. key. Yeah. It, I think it saves a lot of people a lot of like emotional stress if they can talk about other people mm -hmm. and not talking about their own race. Uh, it was, of course, a sense of urgency with regard to the current politi political climate yeah. that is shaped by the rise of nationalist, populist, racist, neo-fascist movements. Mm -hmm. But it's also shaped by unmarked forms of investments in whiteness, mm -hmm. right? So you mm -hmm. have, um, if you look at our issue as a benchmark, mm -hmm. we are concerned with activist white power movements, but we're also concerned with um, perhaps disavowed anti-blackness or white supremacy mm -hmm. in other arenas. Mm -hmm. We wanted to shift the conversation on race in German-American studies where many people work on racial minorities, mm -hmm. right? And as we've already touched mm -hmm. upon, rarely examine um, whiteness mm -hmm. or white supremacy or use white supremacy, that very term, mm -hmm. and rarely examine the cultural production of mm -hmm. white people mm -hmm. to analyze race. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess that's not a purely German phenomenon. And no. I know we've been guided by a specific passage in the book Monstrous Intimacies by Christina Sharp, mm -hmm. where she when she criticizes that the history and ongoing aftermath of enslavement often only becomes legible through the horrors or by focusing on the horrors that are enacted on the black body, mm -hmm. right? And we hope to examine white supremacy without mm -hmm. reproducing like forms of ponotroping without reproducing mm -hmm. a form of spectacle of black mm -hmm. or indigenous mm -hmm. suffering. Mm -hmm. So one argument against studying white supremacy, I suppose, may stem from the fear that the white scholar will become more narcissistic and lose her himself in epistemological navel-gazing and will therefore give whiteness a platform while denying members of underrepresented groups a voice. However, 
critically studying whiteness does not mean to return to appreciating the old canon. Just consider the new COPAS issue under copas.uni-regensburg.de as one example of what critical whiteness studies can look like. So um, we have, as, as the editorial team, we have jointly written an editorial in which we um, also try to um, trace uh, Copas's history. And then um, we also introduce, of course, the topic, because uh, it's the introduction. Um, and then there are um, five articles and one um, afterward. In terms of historical scope, the articles begin their, their respective interrogations of white, whiteness and white supremacy in the 1960s. And yeah, it's basically a trajectory from then to until today. Yeah, so it's, um, our editorial includes the historical reference points mm -hmm. of white supremacy, where mm -hmm. I think a broad public would acknowledge and find consensus on mm -hmm. this defines or this qualifies as white supremacy. But mm -hmm. then our special issue really is dedicated to examining present manifestations of white supremacy mm -hmm. and white supremacy's permutations, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think what's important is that our contributions look at explicit, at explicit forms of white nationalism, Mm -hmm. But they also look for implicit affirmations of white dominance. Mm -hmm. And I think we'd like to start with an article by Axel Germanas from the University of Erlang-Nürnberg, mm -hmm. who has contributed a great article that is entitled Sing for a White City Upon a Hill. And she examines the music of white power movements mm -hmm. from the early 21st century and reveals how they rely on foundational myths of U.S. American nationhood mm -hmm. and more spe specifically how they rely on the racism that is inscribed into these national mythologies. Mm -hmm. Another article comes from Kurt Heinrich Plinke, who is part of a doctoral program at the University of Southern California, and he offers a very intriguing comparative analysis of constructions of whiteness in the U.S. and Western Europe. And among a host of contexts, really, mm. he turns to affect in the work of critical whiteness studies scholars. Mm -hmm. And he directs our attention toward the affect of shame in post-Holocaust Germany and the way shame kind of silences discuss discussions of race and thus entrenches mm. various forms of racism and fascism um, today. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, and there's a very special <laughs> article by Nina Zavanesh and Rahaf Jerry, who mm -hmm. were previous guests on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they have greatly enriched our special issue with a collaborative autobiographical piece that mm -hmm. tackles white dominance and German academia. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has this great dialogic quality where you have mm -hmm. a narrative by a black female scholar, a narrative by a white female scholar, but the two narratives are interlinked, mm -hmm. interwoven by discussing specific events um, in the career. They draw conclusions based on these shared events, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
I wanted to mention um, Till Kadritzke's uh, contribution. He's a PhD candidate at um, the JFK, um, John F. Kennedy Institute um, uh, in Berlin. And he is actually the one who takes us back to the 1960s and 1970s and to um, US-American countercultural discourse. He brings together two very different texts. So the first one is... Um, Charles Reich's um, bestseller, The Greening of America, which is sort of one of the, I guess, one of the foundational texts for countercultural discourse uh, in the US at the time. And then he reads it together with um, Dennis Hopper's movie, Easy Rider. And so he's very much interested in um, the ways in which both these texts create a white countercultural subjectivity um, in which they actually um, draw on what they perceive as what African-American identity is at the time. Um, and the other text that I wanted to introduce is uh, Maria Nikolova's um, Spectres of Whiteness and Don yes. Lillo's Zero K. So she um, takes us to Don DeLillo's work, uh, Zero K was published in 2016 and um, so she looks at the cultural work that Don DeLillo does or that his book does but also at the work that um, the critical discourse on the novel does. So she very much challenges this idea that Don DeLillo um, and the discourse on his work um, has put forward that Don DeLillo's work is often that kind, a kind of visionary or ethical reflection on contemporary crises. And she, she does a very, very meticulous and very detailed reading of how um, his text is actually very much invested in, in, in anti-blackness. So this is very, very intriguing. We um, asked Christine Fogg-Williams yes. to um, write an afterword to all mm -hmm. of the articles. She is kind of an interlocutor for yes. us, okay. another voice that is yeah. not emerging from the articles. As you already heard, Samira and Cedric make a forceful argument why German-American studies needs to address white supremacy. Yeah, because I think it's important for young scholars in Germany and elsewhere, because I don't think that most white scholars mm -hmm are socialized in academia to reflect on their own positionality. Mm -hmm. I think they are socialized to think of themselves as detached observers. Mm -hmm. And Charles Mills makes this brilliant point in his introduction to his book, The Racial Contract, mm -hmm. is that really white supremacy is an underlying, is the underlying political concept. Mm -hmm. And it's missing from all standard classes, yeah. usually yeah. missing from standard yeah. introductions to yeah. political theory, sociology, um, and even American studies for that mm -hmm. matter. Of course, it's relevant to everyone, but it is particularly relevant to junior researchers for several reasons. Um, one of which is that we hope that it will help uh, junior researchers to reflect on their own positionality so that, that it kind of helps them see who they are within sort of the system of the academia of of the university but also within society and one quote from 
um, Charles Mills, uh, we, we thought was particularly um, relevant in this respect, and he says that white supremacy is the unnamed political system that has made the modern world. So he really forces us to um, conceptualize white supremacy as something that is structurally inherent to where we are situated. Um, and that kind of situatedness applies to everyone, but it does so in different ways. To reiterate, if we constantly emphasize race only when it affects the other, the BIPOC in this case, so the black or indigenous or person of color, then race remains an issue that does not pertain to white people, to the ones that profit from it and that perpetrate it. The basic idea behind studying white supremacy is that if we let whiteness continue to exist unexamined, it can continue as an unmarked norm and in this way exert its power. And then scholars will again pretend surprise and amazement when racist movements gain followers, as if white supremacy had been extinct in the meantime. If I may add, for the white scholar, that can also mean overcoming an academic taboo, admitting that you are wrong, that you make mistakes, that you don't know, that you have to reconsider, that you have to let someone else speak, and that you have to apologize. For the white scholar, it thus means to expose her himself. Maybe that's one of the reasons why, recently, fascinating historical research on whiteness enjoys a certain popularity. Because, well, I think that historical distance sort of mitigates these uncomfortable feelings and contains some of these risks. So two historical studies that I would like to recommend at this point are They Were Her Property by Stephanie Jones Rogers, in which she looks at white women as slaveholders in the antebellum USA. And the other book, Mothers of Massive Resistance by Elizabeth Gillsby McRae, who investigates white women and the idea of white womanhood in the anti-civil rights movement, if that's a word, now it's a word, anti-civil rights movement in the USA in the 1950s. Both showcase also how gender roles and whiteness intersect and how these women profited from white supremacy because it extended their sphere of influence. But... Um, Why am I still talking when Samira and Cedric actually brought along a host of recommendations? So I guess the first one um, that I would recommend is an entry in the Oxford Encyclopedia, Research Encyclopedia. It's called Critical Whiteness Studies and is by Barbara Applebaum. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just this fantastic... Accessible, accessible overview, overview of yeah. the term of different waves and strands in critical whiteness yeah. studies. yeah. Uh, and I think Christina Sharp's Monstrous Intimacies and Christina Sharp's book In the Wake. I think it's a great way to start your work through the topic of white supremacy, mm -hmm. even if that person doesn't use that specific term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And I think specifically for a majority white audience, Deloria's Playing Indian is mm -hmm. key, right? Because yeah. um, that is a very clear connection to white German investments in 
I don't think he uses the the word either. I think it was, this really fits into a larger discussion of white supremacy mm-hmm. in terms of settler colonialism, mm-hmm. because there can be no theorization mm-hmm. of white supremacy in the mm-hmm. states without a perspective on mm-hmm. indigeneity. Mm-hmm. Another highly recommended text is Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. Robin D'Angelo is, I think she's a white sociologist, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and she came up with this concept of white fragility to talk about the race-based stress that white people suffer from when they discover that they're white. And in some ways, maybe if, if you have studied African-American literature for a while, she does not say something new in that sense, but the way in which she talks about whiteness is just uh, very accessible. I think it's a very comfortable yeah. didactic entry uh-huh. into right. white supremacy, yeah. but all white people who are truly interested and invested in yeah. anti-racism yeah. should speak really focus their efforts on moving beyond. I think it could be a great start for white people, mm-hmm. but then move on yeah. to read the sources um, without which Robin D'Angelo could not have written this book. Yo, yeah. and White by Law is a great book by Ian Hene Lopez. And it's, I think that would be a great supplementary reading mm-hmm. to keep in mind that white supremacy and race is always structural, right? Mm-hmm. It's co-created and codified by law Mm -hmm. and it's upheld by law even if that law those laws and policies Mm -hmm. do not explicitly use the term white Mm -hmm. supremacy Mm -hmm. or race for that matter Mm -hmm. and Toni Morrison's Playing in the Dark is a classic Mm -hmm. for people in American studies this is actually one piece that a lot of our contributors refer to Mm -hmm. or used in their um, in their works one important contribution is um Racisms without racists, colorblind Mm -hmm. racism and the persistence of racial inequality in America. Mm -hmm. And we definitely need a book like that for the German context. Yeah. They also recommended Whiteness as Property by Cheryl I. Harris and Settler Colonialism and Cultural Studies by Amy Carrillo-Rowe and Eve Tuck. The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander and Carol Anderson's White Rage. I have to admit, I had to cut them off at one point, but you can find a list of their reading suggestions on our Facebook page and on talkingamericanstudies.buzzsprout.com. As you can see, there is a host of texts allowing for a critical encounter with white supremacy. All the more interesting to find out who our interviewees themselves would want to talk to about the issue personally. So one of them would actually be Toni Morrison, which is probably quite an obvious choice, but nonetheless, um, it would be amazing to be able to talk to her. Um, and the other one is um, that I would like to mention is Claudia Rankin. Claudia Rankin is a writer and a scholar and founder of the Racial Imaginary Institute. And you have probably also heard of her because she received tons and tons of prizes, among them the MacArthur Fellowship, unofficially known as the MacArthur Genius Grant. I actually um, got to talk to her and pitched the issue to her. Um, oh, so you actually... <laughs> I did actually talk to her. So yeah. this is not so. just a hypothetical question? No, it, no, no, it's not. It's, it's real. It's very real. Um, but we weren't uh, ready okay. yet when I talked to her. But um, it would be nice to... To, to hear what she, what, she, what she has to say about it, yeah. I would love to talk about this project with Horton Spillers, mm-hmm. right, because she talks about white supremacy 
through the framework of grammar, grammar. and through that choice of words is already drawing attention to the structural mm -hmm. and is drawing all these continuities mm -hmm. between the moment of enslavement and mm -hmm. moments moments in the post civil rights era mm -hmm. but also would like i would love to travel forward in time and talk to the editorial board or the editors of Copas yes. in about 20 years <laughs> uh, and hear what they have to say mm -hmm. when they are producing like the next anniversary issue yeah and reevaluating yeah. our work and our intervention mm -hmm. if you will yeah and we need to thank the other editors of Copas yes. and the contributors yeah i was gonna ask you if you have final words we do, we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we really want to thank um the other members of our editorial team so stefan kutzing gesine wegner and paula von gleich We also want to thank all the contributors for their hard work. And their patience. And their patience. Yeah. And of course, we want to thank you, <laughs> the two of you, for doing this. We want to return the kindness and thank Samira Spatzek and Cedric Essay, who cleared the busy schedule for us. It was a delight to interview them. And eat cookies and cake with them. And also we want to thank Samira's roommates for their patience. Another thanks goes out to Anja Soyunis, who once again helped promote this podcast. And I'm sending out special thanks this time to my friend and muse Catherine Williams at Cardiff University, because she so generously shared her knowledge and resources on white supremacy. As always, thanks go to Professor Nicole Walla for supporting us. And I'm eternally grateful to Yasmin for doing yet another episode with me. If you have any comments, queries, or suggestions, Talking American Studies is on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and can be reached via email under talkingamericanstudies at posteo.net. Also, add the podcast to your list. Hashtag it, embed it, like it, follow it, share it. And check out the other episodes on Spotify, iTunes or the current homepage talkingamericanstudies.buzzsprout.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I also hope you enjoyed this episode. And that you will listen in again. Bye! Bye. You don't. Grace. <laughs> with grace, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with grace. Okay, oh, we do oh, don't. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, please cut that out. Yeah. <laughs>